In Joshua 9 this evening. Joshua 9. As you're turning there, just a little note, something to take note of. Uh, Marilyn Farrell is in the hospital again, as many of you know. Uh, and if you've been keeping track for about the last month, it seems every week she's been going in. And they're running tests on her, and then her lung fills back up with, with liquid, and they have to send her back in. Um, so there's a card down here on the table below me after the service, if you wouldn't mind signing that card, just so we can be an encouragement to her. I know it's discouraging to her being in and out of the hospital and all these tests. Uh, it's just a small thing that we can do to be an encouragement to her. If you're in Joshua chapter 9, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, truly, that last song is our prayer. May the Lord find us faithful. For we know that we will find you faithful. You're a faithful God, ever true, promise-keeping. Even as Dr. Newman's talking about looking back, reflecting, how often do we find ourselves reflecting? And every time we find you faithful, you are a faithful God. Even as we look this evening at Joshua chapter 9, we see the failure, the unfaithfulness of your people, and yet we see that you are still faithful. May we be encouraged this evening. May you work through your word in each one of our lives, accomplishing your purposes for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Appearances often lead us astray. I don't know if there's ever been a situation where you've met someone and, and your first opinion of that person is based off of their appearance. And then how often does that opinion prove to be completely wrong? I've met people that look very polished and, and my first impression is very impressed. And you get to know them and your opinion changes. At the same time, I've met people who, who didn't look very polished. And, and, and what an encouragement it is to be surprised on the other side. Appearances often lead us astray. It's not just in relationships, but in all of life. I think an example of this would be a Ponzi scheme. In 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested for the largest Ponzi scheme in history. I don't know if you remember this story. But he was running a, a company that was completely false. It was just a m massive Ponzi scheme. It looked good. It looked like it was making money. It looked too good to be true. And it was. And a lot of people lost a lot of money. Appearances often lead us astray. This evening as we look to Joshua 9, we'll see that even with the children of Israel. As the Gibeonites, Gibeonites come to them and they look good. Their story appears to be true. And yet it's one of the most famous deceptions in Scripture as they are completely tricked. 
Joshua chapter 9. As we work our way through this chapter this evening, we'll see fake ambassadors, foolish counsel, and false pretenses. Joshua 9. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was an Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. And the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days, after they made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephrah, Beroth, and Kirjah-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. And all the rulers said to all the congregation, We've sworn to them by the Lord, our God, by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the, ruler, as the rulers had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed. And none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, 
because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they might not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. First thing we see as we come to the beginning of Joshua chapter 9 is these fake ambassadors. The first two verses of Joshua chapter 9 actually kind of back up and give a big picture. It came to pass when all the kings who were on the side of the Jordan, in the hills and the lowlands, on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, it lists these, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. When they heard about it, when they heard about it, doesn't tell us what the it is here, but I think it's clear based on the reaction that the it here is, is Israel's defeat at Ai. When they heard about that, when they saw that, when they saw these, these people are not invincible. And they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. The one thing that brought them together was their common enemy, Joshua and the people. What's interesting is that this coalition is what Joshua feared in chapter 7, verse 9. If you remember, directly after Achan's sin, when they suffer this loss, Joshua cries out to the Lord. And he says, oh, this, this will embolden the people of the land. They will come against us. Here his prophecy is coming true. Exactly what he said, what he feared has happened. This defeat has, has unified these people, given them renewed faith, renewed strength to come against the Israelites. What's interesting is that there is a little bit of veiled hope here in these first two verses. Because Deuteronomy 20.17 lists the people that the, the Israelites will defeat. And it lists this exact same list in this exact same order. It says the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. They would have known that. So there's some encouragement here. They're, they're, they're gathering together, and I'm sure that was fearful. But then when they look and see these people, they would know, wait a second. God said this would happen. God told us that we would face these people. I'm sure it was discouraging at first seeing this large army gathering together, but what we'll see in the coming chapters is actually how this works to their advantage. This coalition brings these people out of their cities. It saves the Israelites time. It saves them resources from having to go and to conquer each and every city by itself. Turns out God knows what he's doing. 
So we find ourselves here to the first two verses of Joshua chapter 9. This army is gathering, and Joshua and the people, the question is, coming off of the victory, coming off of their covenantal renewal at the end of Joshua chapter 8, how will they respond to this? Will they respond in faith, or will they respond in fear? Before we even get to that, though, we have this issue with the Gibeonites. See, they're gathering. The other armies, the, the armies of the, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivite and the Jebusite, they're gathering. And Israel has, has gathered now a Gilgal, and they're getting ready. And we come to chapter to, to verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. See, not all the people of the land have the same reaction. The majority of them gather together. But what's interesting to note, if I had a map up here, I could show you that the Hittites, the Amorites, and all the other ites in that list are farther away. They're more towards the coast. The Gibeonites also known as, as the Hivites, they're only northwest of Jerusalem, about seven miles from Ai. They're right on the doorstep of where Israel is. They are the next people on the list. They've got to come up with something fast. They don't have time for this coalition. And so they work craftily. They come up with this plan. What's interesting, that word craftily carries the idea of actually wisdom or prudence. There's prudence here. They're thinking through this. Look at the situation we find ourselves in. How can we get out of this? What can we do? Because Joshua had just tricked the people of Ai in chapter 8, so the Gibeonites trick him here. So they work craftily and they go and they pretend to be ambassadors. They pretend to be representing a people from, from far away. Here in these next couple of verses, they explains what they did. As you work your way through the rest of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, they explain why they did it. Why did you do this? Why did you pull this? Deception. First we see what they did. They came as these fake ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, old sandals, old garments, bread that is dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. They have thought this through. They've thought this through down to the clothes that they are wearing, to the animals that they are riding, and to the food that they are eating. And they say to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country, therefore make a covenant with us. What's interesting is they seem to know the distinction that Moses had made besides those outside the land and those in the land. Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 to 18, he makes it very clear. Those in the land, you show no mercy. You wipe them out. You get rid of them. You destroy them. But he does make the provision. Those outside of the land, you can go to them. You can, you can make 
peace with them. Apparently, these Gibeonites know that, and so they come and they say, we're from a far country, therefore, because of that, because we're from a far away, make a covenant with us. They know that Israel could not make a covenant with them if they were close neighbors, if they were in the land. So this is the situation in which they find themselves. Joshua has these people coming to him, these fake ambassadors, and, and they look good. They've got the old, the moldy bread. Their clothing is torn. Their sandals are worn. They've come. Next thing we see, though, is foolish counsel. Notice in verse 7, it starts out right. They ask the right question. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. You look good. You almost got us, but perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? What if you, what if you are our neighbor? Notice their answer. Notice their, their sly answer. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. They don't, they don't answer his question. They don't say, no, we're from far away. They just say, we're your servants. It's almost flattery. We're here to serve you. It's a very political answer. Answering a question without answering at all. I remember one time when I was in middle school, I was in seventh grade, and I had the opportunity to go to India with my grandfather. And we were at this Bible conference, and there were a couple other speakers that were there at this Bible conference, and one day they had a break, and so I was out with my grandpa and the other speakers, and we were riding a rickshaw around the streets, and, and we stopped at a place where they had some bananas and some fruit, and then the guy got out, and he, one of, one of the other speakers got out, and he grabbed some fruit, and he, he bought it, and he said, hey, do you want a banana? And they had these little tiny bananas there that I loved, and so I was like, yeah, I'll have a banana. And so I'm eating it, and he goes, you know, just joking around, he goes, what do you like better? Do you like girls or bananas better? I was in middle school. It was still embarrassing at that time to like girls. And so I said, well, I don't like bananas that much. And I'll never forget, my grandpa goes, that's the most political answer I've ever heard. <laughs> and I remember I was pretty proud of myself. I got myself out of that situation without embarrassing myself. But that's what we find here. Perhaps you dwell among us. How can we make a covenant with you? Well, we're your servants. They didn't answer the question. They ignore it. So Joshua gets even more close to the right answer. Who are you? Where do you come from? Once again, Joshua here is asking directly. Joshua is showing wisdom. He's getting to the heart of the matter. In fact, he comes right out and he asks it now. Not perhaps... Not maybe, but who are you? Tell me right now. Who are you? Where are you from? It looks like he's about to get to the answer. But then notice they go into this long spiel. From a very far country. Notice they're not giving specifics. We're from a very far country. Your servants, there it is again, have come. But notice this. This is interesting. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. 
And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Notice their craftiness even in this answer. They mention what God has done, but he doesn't, they don't mention what God has done immediately. They don't mention Jericho. They don't mention Ai because they knew if they mentioned that, Joshua would know. It's not been enough time for that to get out. They mention what's happened far longer, how God brought them out of Egypt, what happened beyond the Jordan. But there's something else very interesting about this passage. And that is, like Rahab, in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, they confess the greatness of God. Notice that. Notice that they confess God here. Because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard of his fame and all that he did. It's what they've heard about God that has driven them to do this. I think that's interesting. One of the odd things about chapter 9 is the absence of God altogether. God does not speak in this chapter. Almost every other chapter of Joshua to this point, he does. Even with Achan's sin, he comes in afterwards, if you remember. He confronts that. He cleans it up. He takes care of it. But here, even after this, God does not give his opinion on this. We don't see Israel being punished, men dying in battle like they did with the sin of Achan. I don't know if this is true or not. But I think it's possible. I think it's possible in the context of this passage and seeing how God does not step in and and punish His people. I think it's possible that they really believe this. I think it's possible that the Gibeonites, in the midst of their deception, stumble upon the truth. They take that truth and they come to the wrong conclusion with it. They take the wrong action with it. They choose to lie. They choose to deceive rather than falling at the mercy of God. But they stumble upon the truth here. They confess who God is. I think that's interesting. And to be honest, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. I think it's possible that, that some of them truly did believe. But regardless, their action of deception is wrong. They were wrong. And said, so go on this long story. And there for our elders and all the inhabitants of the country spoke to us saying, take provisions. They get to the end of this and they say, we are your servants now, therefore. That's the third time they've said that. Make with us a covenant. They pull out their bread again. They show their wineskins. They show their, their, their clothes, their sandals. Do 
They still haven't answered Joshua's question. And so the men of Israel then gather and they take some of their provisions. But they do not ask the counsel of the Lord. And that right there is the problem. This is the key. They fail once again to seek God. They make the same mistake that they did in going against Ai. They fail to seek the Lord's counsel. Instead, they take counsel among each other. It's the rulers of the congregation who make this commitment, who make this covenant. They don't go to God. They're convinced. It looks good. It looks wise. This looks like the right thing to do. Joshua here is not trying to sin. He's trying to do the right thing. He knows what God had commanded. And he begins by asking the right questions, but he fails to seek the Lord. His mistake starts long before he makes the covenant. His mistake is in not seeking God. It's in not seeking counsel of the Lord. So with foolish counsel, they make this covenant. And then we come to these false pretenses, starting in verse 16. They make this covenant. And it happens after three days. They've made this covenant that they then hear that this people is actually our neighbors. Actually, they're only seven miles away. They did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. That, that's interesting. They swore by God, but they didn't seek God. I think there's a very important question to ask here. So why isn't the covenant then void? Since it was agreed upon under false pretenses. Why isn't it void? Why, why can't he just go and wipe them out since they lied to them? Because Israel made a covenant by their ever-faithful eternal God. Seemingly there's no conditions to it. They're held to this covenant. My faithfulness to my word is not negated because of your unfaithfulness. If I make a promise, I'm the one who've chosen to speak that promise. You may have lied to me, but if I go against my word, I'm still going against my word. I'm still a liar. I may not have had all the details, but I'm still going against my word. A word that I gave without the details. That's my fault. The problem here is that they make a covenant by the Lord God of Israel without seeking the Lord God of Israel. And the next phrase, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. This may be the only place in the entire Old Testament where the Israelites, I agree with them in their complaints. They're not wrong. Their complaint is valid. It is the leaders who have led them astray. It is their fault that the whole nation is now in sin. The whole nation is now going against God's will. So the rulers have to defend this. And all the rulers of the congregation, we, we've sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Israel. 
Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do, we'll make them servants. It's interesting, in verse 22, Joshua calls them, he speaks to them. He calls them out. Why have you deceived us? Why did you do this? Now therefore you are cursed. But what's interesting is this curse is actually a blessing. Their curse is to serve God. You are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers to the house of my God. It's hard work. Someone has to do it. They'll be serving the people, and they'll be serving God in close proximity to the dwelling place of God on earth. What a privilege. They answer Josh when they say, because your servants were clearly told again, they testify to who God is. This is why we did this. We did this because we've heard who your God is. They make the same confession that Rahab does. They just make the wrong action out of it. They choose to take that truth and lie other than to believe as Rahab does. We go on in verse 25. We've done this. We're in your hands. Do with it as seems good and right to do. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he has chose even to this day. They go on to serve God. Later on, even in, even in Saul's day, they're still there. Even in ne- Nehemiah's day, building the wall, there are Gibeonites there helping build the wall. This curse ends up being a blessing. But the focus of the passage is on Israel's failure to seek God. This all could have been avoided if they would have simply sought the counsel of the Lord. And I think that's the very simple conclusion, application for us this evening. Appearances cannot be trusted. As those who know the Lord, we must seek Him. We must pray about every decision that we make. We must seek His counsel. We must go to His Word. Our first reaction must be to go to God, to go to His Word, to go to Him in prayer, to trust Him, not to lean on our own understanding. That is the problem in this passage. They lean on their own understanding, what looks right, what looks good. They should have known better. They make the same mistake that they've already made, and yet, before we condemn them, let's look to ourselves, because how many times do we do that ourselves? How many times do we fail to seek the Lord? How many decisions have we made, even in the last week, without even considering God? I would encourage you, 
Seek the Lord. As those who trust Him, as those who believe that He is provident, that He is sovereign, that He is in control, that He is leading us, that He is working through us, let's seek the Lord. Things might look good, but seek the Lord. Don't trust appearances. Trust the Lord. That's my challenge. Not my challenge. That's the challenge of the Word of God to us this evening. Seek the Lord. We're going to close with verse 1 of May the Lord Find Us Faithful. 